he put the knife up against my neck by the car door and I saw a vehicle drive by and I was like, the only way I'm getting out of this situation is to run and scream. And the next thing I know, I can feel his hand on the back of my shoulder as I was running and he just tackled me down like a football player. He ultimately stabbed me 27 times. Then he just, just so calmly got stopped and just so calmly, you know, walked away. Hey, this is Matt Cox, and I'm doing a, an interview today with Jane Borowski, and she was, her case was covered on um, Unsolved Mysteries, and it was, uh, she was uh, attacked by the, I want to say it's the uh, River Valley um, killer. Uh, she survived, and uh, we're going to listen to her, her, her story and, and talk about what's happening with the case, and uh, I've looked into it. I've watched a couple of videos. And uh, Jane's going to tell us what happened and uh, what's going on with the case right now. So I appreciate you guys watching and check this out. One, you know, obviously I start and I say, uh, you know, I appreciate you, uh, you know, doing this uh, interview. I would call them a Zoom interview, but whatever, you know, I don't know. This is StreamYard, but I appreciate you doing the interview. And I watched, so I watched the episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah. Um, and I watched a podcast with you talking about, it wasn't so much talking about your story uh, as just kind of like the aftermath of what's happened since then. It was on the, it wasn't on your, it wasn't on your um, YouTube channel because you have a YouTube channel called, um, it's what, Invisible, is it Invisible Tears? Yes, yeah, Invisible watched- Tears. And I watched you on a, a podcast with several other people, and I think it was called like the, um, was it the Underground or what was it called? You know what I'm talking about? It's um, the name of the podcast was it was it was Crawl Space. Crawl Space, yeah. Crawlspace. Yeah, okay, Underground Crawl Space, but <laughs> they'll appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, so I, I watched you on, on watched the video on Crawl Space, and I know you just started your own channel that is basically uh, kind of an investigative channel on uh, crimes and crime and victims of crimes and that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, is that right? It's, it's kind of, it's kind of based on, um, for one, the Connecticut river, the Connecticut river Valley murders right. um, that happened in the late seventies and eighties. And um, I just kind of, nobody's really, um, it's, they're cold cases. Like my case, my my attack happened in 1988. So they're all cold cases, and they're kind of being forgotten, and they're unsolved. Right. And so we wanted to um, start a podcast about getting to know the victims more, the victims that didn't survive. Because um, if you look them up online, all you see is the horrible thing that happened to them you know, they're horrible murders, but you really don't know much about them. And um, so we really, we want to focus on that too. And um, I want to focus on what we're focusing on too is um, after something horrific like this happens to you, you don't just get over it and move on with your life. Um, There's a lot of, you know, physically I healed 
fairly quickly. Mentally, it took like 20 years uh, before I started getting counseling and really started healing because I was clinically diagnosed with PTSD. And um, I didn't know that for 20 years after my attack. And there was a lot of struggles in my life. And I'm very, very transparent um, on my podcast about everything that I've been through and, and what I've, you know, had to deal with. And, and, uh, my life was anything but normal 20 for the first 20 years after my attack until I got counseling. So, um, counseling really helped me a lot. And, and, you know, I, I hope to help somebody else out there to, um, right. understand, understand PTSD a little bit better, especially if they have it and haven't been diagnosed with it. Um, so, so yeah. Okay. Um, well, I'm, so let's talk about what happened. I mean, there had been these unsolved murders where, uh, what were they all women that had been attacked? They were, yeah, they the were. Bodies, the bodies were found. Yep. Uh, they, they were stabbed to death. Um, and moved, right? Is that right? Like, were, were they moved and then attacked somewhere else or? That's what they believe. Yeah. They were abduct, uh, abducted. Some of them were abducted. Some of them were hitchhiking and were picked up. And they were taken to that to their spot and um, stabbed to death. When this was started in uh, 19, uh, you said 78, 79? Uh, 78 was the first one, Kathy Milligan. Yeah. And then in the 80s, it was Elizabeth Critchley, Eva Morse, Ellen Freed, Bernice Cordemash, Linda Moore, Barbara Agnew, and then myself. And after, I'm the only survivor. Right. And there, um, there's, that we know of, we're still really looking into that too. Um, we think that I was the last victim. So we're not really sure. We're still looking into that. Um, I think there may have been more after me, but I'm not sure. Were they all found in the same general area? Um, Claremont area, Unity, uh, Kellyville. Um, the interesting thing is, like, Elizabeth uh, Critchley and Eva Morse, they were both, they, both their bodies were found 500 feet apart, but five years apart. So, like, they found Elizabeth, and then five years later, they found Eva's body 500 feet from where uh, Elizabeth's body was found. So we know that was a dump. That was definitely a dumping ground. And they'd been attacked in the same way. And it was, so their police are sure it's the same, the same killer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, most of the bodies were really badly decomposed because it was, you know, they went missing and it was a year or two before they were found. But I guess after doing forensics, they found that they were definitely stabbed to death. Okay. And so, all right. So the, so the police definitely think that they're all, all connected. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah, they, they do. And then one day, so there were all these murders. And then one day you went to the fair. Yeah. I went to a fair, the County fair in Swansea, New Hampshire. And, um, I was coming home. It was really hot. It was so hot and humid that night. And I was seven months pregnant and I 
was going by a store. Um, it was closed, but it had a soda, soda vending machine outside. So I parked in, in front of the soda vending machine, grabbed a, cup, grabbed a soda, and then the machine ate my money. So I had to go grab another soda. And there was a payphone next to the soda machine. And I noticed a vehicle came, came pulled in and parked right on my passenger side of my car and parked. Um, they were like right in front of the, the payphone. And um, I was getting ready to leave and, and uh, I happened to look in my rear view mirror and he walked around the back side of my car up to my driver's door and opened up the door and tried to grab me out of the car. Asked me if the pay, first he asked me if the payphone worked. And just as he did that, he opened my car door and and tried to um, take me out of the car. And I fought, I fought really bad. I, uh, I, I somehow I got my feet up and I started kicking him. And as I was kicking him, I ended up kicking my windshield and smashing my windshield. And it was, uh, I don't know, after a few seconds of fighting, all of a sudden he takes a knife out and says, uh, maybe this will persuade you to get out of the car. And it did, <laughs> that definitely did. And I, I got out of the car. Um, I was really persistent not to go with him. Um, so he just acted like really weird, um, confused. Um, and I was scared. I didn't know what this guy wanted. I didn't know. I, I certainly did not think that he was capable of doing what he did. Um, so uh, he asked me if this was a Massachusetts car and told me I beat up his girlfriend. And I was, I was like, no, I, um, this, this isn't a Massachusetts car and I certainly didn't beat up any, anybody. And he acted as if he was going to walk back to his vehicle. He started walking back to his vehicle. And by this time, I'm like, oh, my God, this guy's a whack job. What the hell is he doing? And then it, real, it dawned on me, I have a smashed windshield. What the hell? So for whatever reason, I yelled to him, hey, asshole, what about my windshield? Words I regret for the rest of my life. Um, because then he turned around and came back to me and uh, put a knife up against my neck. People judged me. I should have got back in the car. I, I didn't feel threatened by him. I, I, I really didn't. When he was talking about the plate and me beating up his girlfriend, I just didn't feel threatened by him. Um, I, I didn't know. I had no idea he was going to be doing what he what he did, but um, he put the knife up against my neck by the car door, and I saw a vehicle drive by, and I was like, "The only way I'm getting out of this situation is to run and scream." So I started running and screaming at the vehicle, and the vehicle just drove by, and the next thing I know, I can feel his hand on the back of my shoulder as I was running, and he just tackled me down like a football player and I was on my back and he got on top of me and just started stabbing me and it was so surreal it was like I couldn't believe that he was doing this 
but yeah, I knew I had to protect my baby. Um, so I had a lot of defensive wound stab wounds on my hands and it was, um, he ultimately stabbed me 27 times and Mm. then he just, just so calmly got stopped and just so calmly, you know, walked away. I could hear him walking away and I'm laying on the ground thinking, Oh my God, I can't believe this just happened to me. And, uh, I knew I had to get up and get help. So as I, rolled over to my hands and knees and getting up. I'm also wondering where the heck is he? Where is he? Is he coming back? You know, I I don't hear anything. All of a sudden I heard the vehicle and he just slowly drove right by the, my head as I was getting up and looked right down at me. And I looked right up at him and he drove away. And, uh, do you think he felt like he had, he had finished you off and there was just no surviving what had, I mean, 27 times. Who's going to survive that? Yeah, I I do. I I believe he, he left me for dead. He thought I was going to die. Um, I truly believe that. And, uh, but then (laughs) at that moment, I think he thought I was going to die. But when I got in my car and I had a friend that lived about two miles down the road, on the same road, I, um, I knew I had to get to his house. So I started going to driving down the road and (laughs) next thing I know, I'm, I'm right behind him. So he wasn't speeding off. He wasn't trying to get out of the area real quick. He was just casually, casually driving. Yeah. And, um, I got behind him and I was like, Oh my God. He's going to see where I'm going. That was my biggest fear. He was going to see where I was going. Okay, now he knows I'm still alive. He knows that I'm driving, and he's going to know where I'm going. So I, I came up upon my friend's house, and I pulled in the driveway, and and he kept going. And um, I, I said, I got out of my car. I didn't even shut my car off. I went up to my friend's door. He had the screen door open. He came to the door. He must have heard me drive in the driveway, and... I just said to him, some asshole just stabbed the crap out of me. You need to get me help. And then I collapsed on his stairs. It was, I was just losing so much blood that I I don't even know how I made it to his house. But um, yeah, so while he's calling for help, all of a sudden we hear the car come back, the vehicle. And we hear it squeal its tires, like slam on his brakes, squeal its tires, and then it took off. I think it was him. I think he wanted to see where I was and see if people were home, they were helping me or whatever. And and then he took off and gone in the night, never to be seen again. He once conned Bank of America out of $250,000 using nothing but a fake ID and his charm. He is the most interesting man in the world. I don't typically commit crime, but when I do, It's bank fraud. Stay greedy, my friends. Support the channel. Join Matthew Cox's Patreon. So, I mean, you, you, you called the police, you, so when you, one, when you, I I just, and I noticed this when I had watched the program and and then again, like, I, I understand that, you know, in that moment, you're just trying to get away. 
but you do did you think about trying to get his uh his tag number at the time and that, that never even occurred to you like you got bigger I, I wish i did yeah i mean it never occurred to me because i was just for one i was in shock because of what just happened to me i was just stabbed 27 times right. um and then afterwards i found out he had, he had sliced my juggler so i was losing an enormous amount of blood um but I was so scared. I was more scared about him seeing where I was going. Right. And um, so it just it just never occurred to me. But when I was hypnotized, the plate was really dirty. Right. So I don't think I really could have um, identified the plate to begin with because right. the plate was really, really dirty. Was well, it? It's easy to look back and think of all the things, you know, I should have done this. I should. But in, in that moment, oh, yeah. your instincts yeah. are kicking in and you're just like I, i'm just trying to i'm just trying to survive for the next five minutes yeah like but don't forget too i was only 22 and there was no social media then there was no internet then and so i realized there was a serial killer lurking in new hampshire i didn't realize that there were people out there doing this um you know i was 22 i was young i i, I i've never been exposed to anything like this, you know, true crime or crime or anything like that. The town that I was attacked in, there was virtually no major crime back in the 80s. It, it was a really small community. So yeah, I can I can look back and say, oh, I wish I did this, wish I did that. I didn't know that, you know, this was happening in the real world. I was 22. Right. You know? So, um, so my question is you that your friend calls the police and an ambulance, obviously they show up, they come, they pick you up. At what point did the police show up to, to question you and, and start looking into this? Well, um, when I was, when I was still at the house, a really good friend of mine, um, or, or me and my husband's, uh, Petey Farnham, he had showed up. He was the cop on duty. And, um, he showed up, he knew me right off the bat. And he kept asking me, you know, who did this? And and I told him I didn't know. And um, at that point, I had given him a description of the vehicle. So they knew the vehicle description. What kind um, of vehicle was it? It was like a 1985 to 1987 Jeep Wagoneer. It was either dark green or dark brown. And it had wood green sides. So they had a really good description of the vehicle. But when I went to the hospital and then I was, I, I was immediately brought to, to the um, OR operating room, um, I was up in um, intensive care for about five days. Um, I had two collapsed lungs, um, cut my juggler. They gave me two bags of blood, um, sliced my tendon on my hand, sliced my tendon on my knee and um, uh, lacerated my liver, but my baby survived. Thank God, um, there was nothing, nothing, uh, no stabs, no, no injury to her whatsoever. So while I was in the hospital, I, had a, I was on the ventilator and that's when they did the um, composite, which is interesting because it was all done by me blinking my eyes and them showing me these little slides of different noses and faces and and stuff like that. 
But it was after I got out of ICU and got into my regular room is when all the detectives came up and actually interviewed me to actually know what happened. So for, for like five days, they had no idea what actually happened. Um, they knew that I was stabbed. They knew it was, you know, they knew the vehicle and, um, but very, very little more than that. Um, God, and back then there was, it's not like there was a camera on every cor street corner, you know, back oh, then. Yeah. There was no camera on the store. Drive away, yeah. drive away you're done. Like yeah. it's, it's virtually impossible to track someone down at that point. Yeah. I know that for a couple of days, they did some roadblocks to see if anybody um, around the store to see if anybody had noticed anything that night, heard anything. Um, and, and looking for the, the, type of vehicle that I described. So I know that they did that for a few days before I came to and was able to be interviewed, but yeah, they, you know, at the time, I think they did what they could. Um, there was no forensics back then. They couldn't do DNA or, or anything like that. They did lift fingerprints off my car. Um, but I mean, there wasn't much they could do back then. They have nothing to compare it to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, they couldn't put fingerprints in CODIS back then. Right. Uh, they couldn't run DNA back then because it was, that didn't exist. So. So how long did that, did they immediately connect it to the, up to the, the murders that had occurred? Or was that something? <laughs> That's interesting because um, the media very quickly did because <laughs> uh, I was in the hospital and I actually read it in the paper. And then when the detectives came up, because they were up there almost every day seeing me. And then when they came up, I was like, uh, is this true? Because I, ne I never heard about the, the other murders. I didn't know anything about that. Right. I didn't know that, you know, these, the serial killer was running around and, and had already killed these women. So you know, I was like, uh, is this true? <laughs> and they were like, yeah, we're pretty sure that you're connected to them. So that's, that's when I found out. Um, I guess there's quite a few factors that they, they consider that they considered and how they, um, determined that I was, I was one of the victims. Yeah. Actually I'm the survivor. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then so okay so one they they never caught the guy and no but you're saying there you think there may have been other other victims after you that haven't been connected and where did that go because i had heard that there were that there were there were other there were suspects like they suddenly had suspects yeah. but they just never connected so do you, what what happened with that i mean obviously this dragged on for yeah. years, yeah, you know, decades at this point. My attack was thirty-four years ago, so I I don't know. I think I know that it's in the cold case unit. All these, all the this whole case, my case and their cases, um, but. And I know that a lot of different eyes have looked at, at them. Um, but I mean, personally, I, I haven't been called in 30 years. They haven't 
with all the different eyes going in and looking at these cases and looking at mine, I, I have not had, I would think that some detective would, with new eyes would call me and say, have some kind of questions for me right, after cool. 30, after 34 years, you know, Oh, I, I, you know, I need this clarified. Can you clarify this for me? Or can you clarify that for me? Um, I haven't been contacted in over 30 years, except <laughs> a couple of years ago, two years ago, exactly. Um, I had a detective at, from Concord call me out of the blue and said, um, uh, can we re-fingerprint you? I, I'm just briefly looking at your case and want to re-fingerprint you because I know there was some fingerprints lifted off your car and I want to eliminate which they did that back then. The, everybody that touched my car was fingerprinted so that they could eliminate fingerprints. And um, I, I was like, yeah, I'll come in. I have no problem with that. He's like, oh, I'll call you in two weeks. Um, give me about two weeks and I'll schedule you in with, and, and you know, you can go right over to Keene and do it instead of coming all the way to Concord. And I was like, okay, give me a call back. Let me know when and where. I'll, perfectly available. I haven't heard from him back. He has never called me back. I haven't heard from him since. It was just so weird. It's like all of a sudden out of the blue, they call me and then I don't hear back from them. So I don't know. I don't know. I, I think that with my case and their cases, it's, it's a lot of missed opportunity of solving these. Right. Well, especially over the years. I mean, now they got forensics and they got DNA and they've got all this, all this stuff. And are they running this stuff? You know, they got CODIS now. Are they running, you know, fingerprints through CODIS? But they won't talk to me. So I, I have no idea. They won't even talk to me anymore. I try calling up there and I get the runaround. Somebody will call you back and nobody does or. I don't know. They took me, they have a website, um, the cold case website for New Hampshire, and it has all the cold cases on there. And for, for God, good five, 10 years, I was on there. And all of a sudden they took me off it. So I'm not even on there anymore. It's like, you know, it's, it's frustrated. You know, all I want is the answers. I don't want to bug them. I don't want to tell them how to do their jobs. I mean, they should know how to do their jobs. But I, I want answers, you know, where is this going? Are you still looking at things? There's new, there's new technology nowadays. Are you using it? You know, but I don't get anything because they won't even talk to me anymore. Well, sometimes it's publicity that changes, changes these things. Like there oh, were, yes, it does. <laughs> there were, there were some several murders in, uh, in Tampa. And the problem is, is, especially something like this, since it's so random, like you don't know who this guy is. No. He obviously didn't know who you were. He's driving by. He saw an opportunity. Hey, there's a girl, there's a woman there, young woman at a store by herself, very little lighting, no cameras, nobody's around. Let me swing in here. He may have been driving around for hours looking for that opportunity. So um, the, the, the thing is like there was a murder in in Florida, I mean, there's tons of these, but this one in particularly, in particular, come, uh, stands out where there had been a was a woman that had come to Florida on vacation with her two daughters, met had a guy stopped or a guy had met her at a gas station. He said, "Oh, you're on vacation with your daughters. 
let me take the three of you out um, to, you know, on a fishing trip. And she said, oh, that'd be wonderful, you know. And this is, I, I want to say this is in the 80s. He, he gave, he wrote down his, or he wrote down something for her. Like his, an address, a phone number, something. I forget what it was. <laughs> And or like, hey, I'll meet you here at this time, like an address. And he just wrote it down and gave it to her. And she left that address in her car somewhere, and they found the car later. They never found the kids. Um, she had told somebody, oh, I met we met a guy at a gas station. He's going to take us out. He has a boat. They never heard from her again. Nobody ever heard from her again. They found like this in either her car or in her hotel room something and that went unsolved for a couple decades and then the cold case team got a hold of it and somebody went through and said we have a we have one clue it's all we've got we, we, you know it's a man we have a clue and they took that and they put it on a billboard and said does anybody recognize this handwriting and a woman drove by and saw the handwriting and called the police and said that's my ex-husband's handwriting why? What's going on? Who are those women? And they talked to her and, and they said, did he have a boat? She goes, yes, he did have a boat. He's had several boats. We live a couple of blocks from, and they said, does he, are you in this area? He said, in, from this address, we lived a couple blocks from that area. When was this? Happened to be she was on vacation for a, a week visiting her mother. Turns out he had choked her several times. He was extremely abusive. He'd been arrested in the past. He had attacked women in the past. He was a bit like he, it was just across the board. And somehow or another, they came and they they arrested him and they grabbed him and eventually he confessed and that was it. He and he explained the whole thing. He had met her. He'd met the kids. Brought him on the thing. Got him on the boat. You can imagine what happened. Dumped their bodies in the ocean. But I mean. So sometimes it's some guy, <laughs> some guy that you don't you don't know that says, "Hey, who knows?" I mean, I can think of another cold case where they went and re-interviewed the victim, and it just so happens that while she was saying she was being re-interviewed, the one police officer asked one question that nobody else had asked, and he went, and it was like, "What?" And she said that, and he said, "That's weird." So he went back and checked something out. And next thing you know, boom, they had the car. Track the car down, went in, talked to the guy. You know, and then sometimes it's just a matter of talking to their friends and family, and they say, oh, man, he admitted to me that he had done this. And then they look into the person, and they find out that his DNA matches, and you just don't know. You just don't know, but it's, it's a combination of publicity, and it's a combination of going back and looking. And, you know, I mean, I know the police have to be frustrated, but – you know, and there, and there obviously there's, you know, there's a lot going on, but, you know. Yeah, there is a lot going on now, but I mean. Still, you don't know if you take another look at it. Exactly. So I had seen on the, um, the Unsolved Mysteries uh, one where they had done an update and they said that you believed that it might be possible that, that there was, that you thought you might have known that this person had, somebody had died and you thought he might be a suspect. Michael Nicolau, <laughs> if you go on and punch up Connecticut River Valley serial killer, Michael Nicolau's picture is there. Um, 
I'm going to explain. Um, a few years ago, eh, quite a few years ago, I think it was 2008 or something like that, 2005, I was contacted by a private investigator in Florida. And she, um, she was uh, investigating a missing person and come up, um, come up upon Michael Nicolau. And she, um, uh, upon investigating him, she really felt, she came across the Connecticut River Valley murders. So she really felt like he was connected. Um, I formed a relationship with her and we were, um, she really convinced me that it was him. Um, I was, <laughs> you got to understand, I have so many people come to my door still, still, after all these years, just a few months ago, I had one. They come to my door, they email me or they, um, you know, send me letters. I know who did this. It was my husband. It was my ex-husband. It was my cousin. It was my classmate or whatever. Um, a lot of people have come to me with the, this information. And, you know, I've always been, give it to the state police, bring it to Concord, to the detective unit. I can't do anything with it. But Lynn, this private investigator, she had... Um, she had told me that she had given all the information to the detectives, but they weren't doing anything about it. And that, um, you know, we needed to do all this social media and all this um, um, media to get this, the word out that it was Michael Necklau and da, 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 da. And I was really against it at first because I felt like I, I thought it was the, the detective's responsibility to do that. Right. But she just felt like that they weren't giving it enough attention. And, you know, she made me feel like if I didn't do this then nobody was going to take us seriously, that nobody was ever going to take any of any of this seriously. So I did it. I, I wish I didn't. I, I wish I had just um, distanced myself and let the detectives uh, investigate it. Um, so I ended up severing, I ended up just not having contact with her anymore. And I've had a, a few other private investigators look into Michael Nicolau. And um, yeah, he doesn't fit. There's a lot of things. She was trying to make everything fit with Michael Nicolau, but there was a lot of things that didn't fit. And, and she never focused on that. She just did tried to get against the guy or did she was, I think it was for her own agenda because I, she had a lot of plans. <laughs> like she wanted to do a movie and, and um, I think she felt like if she could solve this, cause nobody else could, then um, it would bring her a lot of, uh, she loved media attention, loved yeah. media attention. Yeah. there's lots um, and, and I think that's what she, she, that's what I think she was was uh, trying to get was a lot of media attention. And and she was trying to convince people this was him for her own agenda. 
And as soon as I realized that is when I, I decided I didn't want contact with her anymore. And um, as I talked to, you know, I did talk to the detectives once about it. And they were just like, it's, a lot of things didn't fit. You know, we're still looking into it, but just a lot of things didn't fit. And uh, same with some of the private eyes that I had looked in, had other people look into it. And they were like, you know, some things fit, but a lot of things don't fit. Right. And um, a lot of it, a lot of her information was hearsay, secondhand, uh, just wasn't a lot of reliable information. But she went wild and crazy on on social media and on the internet. So now when you look these up, there's his name, there's his face. And we're trying to um, get rid of that now because these are still unsolved cases. That's what I really, really want people to understand. These are still unsolved. Nobody has ever been convicted of these. Right. Um, and I really want people to understand that. Right. Um, what is going on? Like there's like they're mowing or something. I hear that. I, um, I don't know. There's nothing I can do about it. I, just, I think you want to wait 20 minutes. Um, um, I think so. You know, it's, it's funny. Like I, I have a, a guy that grew up in my neighborhood had been murdered. And everybody knows who did it. Right. So, and this is, this is an, you know, upper middle class neighborhood, just some kid who, when he was 19, 20, 21 years old, started selling, uh, selling drugs and started selling drugs with another kid. And then he ended up ripped. The first kid ripped off the second kid. Well, the second kid, well, I'm, it's actually the, the, the second kid ended up ripping off the first kid. And so what happened was the first kid who's an upper middle class, uh, you know, kid, like he's selling drugs granted, but you know, not like you wouldn't think violent or anything. Um, and he one day talked to the, the second participant and said, Hey, let's go buy some more drugs acting like he didn't know that he had ripped him off, picked him up in a, used or in a rental car that was rented to his, from his girlfriend, picked him up, drove him out to the woods and um, basically tied him to a tree and broke his fingers and beat him. And then eventually shot him several times and left him for dead. He was found about two, three weeks later by uh, a guy that, you know, they call them the snake charmers, the guys who catch, they catch snakes in yeah. the world, Florida. Um, it's a thing here. So some guy in the middle of nowhere found the body. Now, when the police went in and looked into it, they were, they're like, okay, the last person, last phone calls made to this guy was this guy. He picked him up at his house. He picked him up in a rental car. Oh, and they found the rental car set on fire a few miles away. Like the whole thing is it, it's like there's all this circumstantial evidence, and the, the guy – the the murderer has confessed several times. He's told people in bars, he's gotten drunk with buddies and told them, oh, I killed him. The, it's still cold case because they're like, murder is very hard to prove. Yeah. You know, we go that like one and his parents are saying he was home the whole time with us. 
He never left that weekend. So everybody who's saying he left and picked this guy up, and that's a lie. He was here with us. We watched the football game. We don't know what you're talking about. Like, you know, the girlfriend who initially said, you know, yes, I had rented a car, but it got stolen. You know, all of these little things that, you know, that they could never quite put it together. Like, we can't have the girlfriend say the car got stolen because there's the car that they were said he got picked up with. The parents are saying that, like, it's, there's lots of circumstantial evidence, but the truth is, in the end, it's not enough for us to, we can't spend forty or $50,000 trying a case yeah. where the girlfriend's going to say, I rented the car, he never had it, it was stolen. You know, the parents say, he never left the house. Like, what do you really have? You've yeah. got one person that says, my boyfriend said, this guy was picking him up. And I remember he he called him and said, hey, I'm outside. And he walked outside, got in the car and left. That's all I know. Is that the car? Yeah, it was like a rental car, like an average four-door car. I think that's the car. Is it the car? Yeah. They made they made 30,000 of them. You see what I'm saying? Like, it's like, it's like oh, I do not enough They're, the evidence is there and a lot of people are like oh you should this they could that well, you have to understand they they understand what's going to be presented in front of a jury and then they lose and then they've lost it then they never get that guy um, so you know it it's it's i see that it's a, a tough situation for police especially when it seems like all the evidence is there he he multiple mm -hmm. times he told people he did it he's told people yeah he was drunk in a bar mouthing off it wasn't recorded. Will that person get on on the stand and say he said it? And even then, it's just hearsay. I mean, it's just hearsay, secondhand. Yeah, and the problem is, in most states, hearsay, you know, really isn't admissible. So he may not be able to get on the stand and say that he heard it. It's it's a problem, you know. It's um. So I mean, I I I feel it's like I always feel for the detectives. I mean, I feel for you know someone who's like, hey, it's so obvious. The problem is what they believe and what they can prove are just two completely two different things. And it's yep. sounds solid to you and I, but then they know what it's going to sound like in front of a jury. It's, it's a tough situation, you know. Um, he once got plastic surgery because he didn't like the photo on his wanted poster. His legend precedes him. The way indictments precede arrests. He is the most interesting man in the world. I don't typically commit crime, but when I do, it's bank fraud. Stay greedy, my friends. Support the channel. Join Matthew Cox's Patreon. So, so now you're you've started a podcast. I I, I checked it out. <laughs> I saw that you you just started posting videos. Of only what about three weeks? Maybe a month ago? Two, three weeks uh, ago? We launched August 29th. Okay, yeah, so yeah. About a month. Okay. A month, a month, okay. Um, yeah. So I saw that, and what I'll do is it's, it's um, hold on, it's called Invisible Tears. Yeah. And I'll leave the link in the description if anybody wants to click on awesome. it. And the first, but the first two episodes, you just go over your, your story, right? I do. I, I start right from the beginning and, and talk about my whole attack. Um, all the way through to, you know, me being in the hospital and um and then the following one is is uh me having Jessica, my daughter. 
So who's the person? There's another person that's on the podcast with my co-host, Amanda. She's she does all the editing and she's the producer with her husband. And uh, she's my co-host and she's my God. She's my everything. She's my uh, life coach and my Reiki master and uh, very, very dear friend. Are you? um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. uh, I was going to say, are you planning on? See, now they stop. They stop mowing. Um, are you planning on interviewing the, trying to interview the families of any of the other? We are, we are, that's going to come, um, next season, probably in the spring. Um, cause I'm also doing, I'm also involved with another project, Dark Valley and, uh, they're doing, um, that's with Tim and Lance and Jen from Crawl Space Media. Okay. And, uh, they're going to be launching in, in the spring. I want to say right around the April, April mark. So um, they've been doing a lot of uh, interviewing of the family members. And um, so we think we're going to be um, interviewing family members uh, in our next season. Um, But we we interviewed um, uh, John Philpin. He was the, the, um, uh, investigator yeah he, he's um um god my mind just went dead um he's the one that does oh criminal profiler okay yeah john's the cr- criminal profiler of all these cases and he was very involved with the task force that they formed in the 80s and uh i i did a wonderful interview with him um very intriguing man uh you know, I've known him for years, but in this interview, I learned so much more about him. Um, wonderful, wonderful man. Uh, he's been doing criminal profiling for years and years uh, with a lot of different big cases. And um, I'm also going to, uh, I, I got to, um, there was another victim that I did an interview with. Her name is uh, Michelle Renee. Um, she did a... Um, they did a movie on her uh, on Lifetime, Held Hostage, and she also wrote a book, Held Hostage. Her and her daughter were at home one night, and these men came in and held them hostage overnight and made her, tied her daughter up in dynamite and made her go and rob her bank the next day. Uh, she had to leave her daughter wrapped in dynamite and go go rob her bank. Uh, amazing story, um, terrifying, but her, her, she's, um, she's just such an inspiration to everybody because she's overcome so much. Uh, and she shares her story and her, um, healing with PTSD. And, and so that's, that's another wonderful interview. She's a very, very dear friend. It's funny because she lives out in California but um, and we never met. <laughs> We've only talked on the phone, but it's like we we know we known each other forever. So, um, yeah, we've got we got a lot of good stuff coming. A lot. Of, I talk a lot about um, my life after the attack, because uh, a lot of people don't realize, um, you know, my life just didn't uh, my attack just didn't end that day. Uh, it, it carried on in my life for for 20 years. I mean the financial impact that, that it put on my life, uh, from my attack, um, the mental, um, I received hate letters. <laughs> it's like, uh, 
um, you know, doing unsolved mysteries and and stuff like that. It, it was like the hate letters are uh, that that one just aired yesterday. Um, that episode was just on yesterday or today. Today it's going to be on. Um, what the podcast where you talk about the hate letters? Yeah, on your channel. Yeah, yeah on Invisible Tears. Yeah, I mean, people like back. This happened a couple of years after my attack. People were. Um, it was right after Unsolved Mysteries. Um, people wrote me letters like from different parts of the country and hand wrote letters because we didn't have the internet or anything back then. But they, um, yeah, they wrote me letters saying uh, I need to stop playing the victim card and take responsibility for what I did. And I shouldn't, I should have known better than to stop at that store at night, especially putting my unborn child in danger. It's, the letters are crazy. It was like, People are scumbags. You know, they are. But you know leave, what? They'll leave stuff in the comments, you know, like just they troll you and they'll say, yeah. or what, and, and they're just looking for attention. I mean. Yeah. But yeah, they're looking for attention on, on the media part. But this was before social media. I mean, these well, I people. still existed. Li- you know, yeah. Yeah. They, instead, they had to write letters. Yeah. Yeah. It was so, uh but the thing about those was them affected me for a long time. I didn't tell anybody about those letters until I told my uh, counselor 20 years later. I mean, those letters, reading them all the time, really convinced me for a long time that my attack was my fault. And um, I talk a lot about that in this episode. Because you, it was your fault because you wanted a soda? Because I, I, I wanted a soda. I, it was hot and I wanted a soda like that, like, you know, like no matter where you go at any time, you really, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, it shouldn't be like, you should be able to anywhere, where else could be safer than a store with no people around. Yeah. There's nobody around. Like I should be perfectly fine here. No, I should stop in the, uh, you know, in an area where there's packed full of people. To me, people are dangerous. Um, so yeah, it was just crazy. Crazy time. You know, people people will, they can twist facts to suit their own needs. Um, so I was going to mention this to you. Um, you know, I was, when I was incarcerated, well, one, your friend, by the way, that was, the daughter was held hostage. Yeah. Have you ever heard of the, the pizza bomber? The guy, they no. put a collar on this guy that had had explosives in it and told him to go rob a bank. Oh, I remember that. Turns out yes. he was in on it. Like he, the guy with the collar was in on the crime. And it went off, it blew up and you know blew his head off. Yeah. Well, the guy that actually made the device, they called him the pizza bomber I was in prison with. Really? He ended up dying in prison. Um, Good. <laughs> very strange guy. Very weird guy. Uh, so that one, I wanted to mention that, which is very similar to that, that type of a, it's just such a bizarre, you know, it, it's, I hate to say well thought out. It, it is well thought <sighs> out. So overwhelmingly devious. Like anyone who thinks that much into it and goes to that extent, like they should never get out of prison. Like they, yeah. that's, that's. And that's um, pretty scary people to have on walking what, around on the streets. What's even stranger about the pizza one is I, if he's in on it, like you're not putting a working device on my neck. 
<sighs> there's a timer. There's a timer. It's going to go off. And it did go off. So that's crazy in and of itself. Second thing I was going to mention was, um, have you ever looked at your file that the police have? Well, this is interesting because I just sent a letter um, asking for my file, yeah. asking for, and uh, <laughs> I got a response back that it's going to take about 180 days and come 180 days, they may have to extend it for another 180 days because of lack of resource. They need to, um, yeah, go through stuff and see what they can give me and what they can't give me. So no, I've never seen it. Uh, I, I just realized, or I just, I, it was just brought to my attention not too long ago that I have a right to see it. Yeah, the um, Information Act. The, yeah. Even in the, even the-, the That's what the, I just sent them. Freedom of Public Records Act is it for the state, but yeah, you absolutely. When I was incarcerated, I ordered all kinds of people's information and their cases, and you'd be shocked at what you'll get, especially you. You know, in the state, you'll probably get a lot of stuff, and you get to see who they interviewed, when they interviewed, what they said. That's you know. what I want. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it, I really, really want. It may also help spark spark something for you. Mm -hmm. Things that people have said. Although yours is so random, I don't know that that's necessarily possible. But it, it, you don't you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. I'm always shocked at what breaks a case. You know, um, son of Sam just happened. He got a he got a parking ticket. Yeah. The whole case was blown open because he got a parking ticket. Like you know, who somebody said, let's try and figure out what cars were in that area. Let's get one of these rookies to look through and see who got a parking ticket. Like that one person. They've been looking at it for, for months and months and months. One guy had one decent idea that ended up catching, you know, Berkowitz. Um, That's what I keep saying. I, I, I keep saying these, a uh, lot of missed opportunities in solving these cases and solving mine. And I think it's just going to take that one thing, that one little, my, my fingerprints, the fingerprints off my car. I mean, I think that if they've run that, even even if they've ran it before years ago, run it again. You don't know if he's uh, been, been fingerprinted arrested. for a job or anything. You know, he's been arrested. Look, people don't just stop. Sometimes someone like this with this kind of a, a personality defect isn't just going to stop. No, he's not no, going to suddenly you know. say, "Hey, I got all. I'm all better now." Yeah. No. Um. Yeah. The the other thing I was gonna. Uh, going to say was you know it may not even be your case that anything on your case it just may be you know if they ran old dna from all the other cases maybe he cut himself during one of these you know knives blood is slippery people's hands slip uh maybe he cut himself maybe there was a sample taken uh maybe he's been had his dna taken since then you know that that happens um there's lots of little tiny things that can eventually catch up to people so, you know, you don't know, but um, okay, do you have anything else uh, that you want to, you want to mention or? Um, I, have a, I have a granddaughter now because my daughter survived because I survived, my daughter survived and I have a granddaughter. So um, I think that's pretty special. I just don't want these victims to be forgotten. Right. And um, I don't want this case, these cases to be forgotten. They're unsolved. No matter what you read on the internet, 
these cases are still unsolved. And that's like super important have, for people to know. Have you thought about um, writing a, a book of some type or? I have, I have thought about it. Um, Even if it's small, like it doesn't have to yeah. be three or 400 pages. It can be a 150 page book. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, and the, the nice thing about something like that is that's something you can physically give to documentary producers that they actually have, you know, that they have a, a, an accounting and they have all the details in chronological order and they can see it and they can decide, Hey, this is, this is a thing. Like we need to, you know, we need to look into this. It can be as simple as a, a true crime memoir where it's simply from your perspective. Well, I've been with working with crawl space media, um, and with dark Valley, um, that was, that was the intent was, uh, they want to do a, a documentary on, on all this, the Connecticut River Valley murders and my case and, and all of it. Um, so right now we're trying to find somebody to buy it. Um, we thought we had somebody, but they were like, well, these are unsolved. There's no ending. It's like, what are you talking about? I mean, who knows? It might be by the time we get done with the documentary, you don't know. Um, you know, right now we're looking, we, we had quite a few suspects, uh, names come to our attention and we're really looking into those, uh, a lot. But, um, you know, I don't understand why they need an, a solved ending. They need us, they need the, the cases to be solved in order to do the documentary. Well, that's, that's not a documentary. I think documentary so. is going through and, and, and looking at everything and, and following us with, with looking at, you know, all kinds of different evidence and suspects and stuff like that and doing interviews. And so, I don't know. Well, we're hoping there's that's a, it's a lack of imagination on the producer's part to say that it has to be answered. I mean, there are documentaries yeah. out there. There's plenty out there where there's no conclusive answer. It's a matter of exactly. documenting this entire, you know, this entire process of what happened of, you know, and, and maybe the whole documentary is, is that, Hey, there were so many missed opportunities and this is now, this is, you know, this is an issue that look at all these opportunities that were missed and, and it should have been solved. You know, who knows? Who knows? That's what we're focusing on. So hopefully, uh, you know, somebody will, uh, hopefully they'll, they'll present it to someone that, that does want to buy it. So we have hopes. In the meantime, hopes. you might want to look, you might want to enter the Freedom of Information Act or yeah. on, on the other victims too it'll tell you a lot more than I'm sure you already know. Like what, you, what you've gotten so far is you've spoken with probably a few of the families and maybe you've spoken may, and you've read the articles, but you actually get the case files, which are cold. Like there's no reason they, they, they shouldn't be able to say. They, but New Hampshire is so different. New Hampshire does not like giving information at all. They don't even like talking to you. Um, like Fred Murray, like Maura Murray's case, Fred Murray, he had to go to court and sue them so he could see his his own daughter's uh, uh, information, the whole investigation and all that. I mean, they don't, New Hampshire is so different. They don't like to um, give information whatsoever. And, uh, but, but we are, I'm fighting for it. So yeah. I we'll mean, see to, what happens. To me, I would start the process. Yep. Because well, I started the process with mine. So, right. well, I'd start the process with everybody because 
you already have a form letter. You already wrote your letter. So you already have the letter written. It's a matter of popping in the different um, names and, and finding those those different departments, or is it the same department? It's the, As far as I know, everything is up in the cold case unit up in Concord, New Hampshire. So, so then it should be pretty easy. And then if they, of course, if they end up saying no and they give you a denial, well, then you can go to court. You know, you can pull the documents for what the, the other person had filed in his case. You just copy his motions. Yeah. But once that process starts, most likely – most likely they give it to you or then call a local reporter, have the reporter call and say, why aren't you giving under the freedom of public records? Why aren't you typically they go, wait a second now, let's let con, we're going to give her, hold on. No, you might get a phone call and they might say, of course, we're going to give it to you. I don't know why we said no. That's crazy. That was John. John's not here anymore. Um, Yeah. You'll probably get everything. So but at the very least, what's great is because I've, I've written a bunch of books, uh, true crime uh, books while I was incarcerated. What was great is that there are always these little tiny details that that make it interesting. And then once you've got all of those files, it's great to be able to go to a documentary producer or director and be able to say, hey, like I've done all the research because their first thought is like, you don't realize the amount of research that's going to go into this. No, I do. And I have the research. And I've broken it up and it's written in a 190 page or 250 page book. And I have documents to prove everything. Now they go, oh, wow, this change, that changes a lot. So it's something to think about. I'd like to, I'd like to write a book about my story. You know, if anything about my case and my story, I don't even know where to begin with that. I'm not, I'm not one to. It seems overwhelming, but to be honest, if you take a day or two to write an outline, just a brief outline mm-hmm. on what you want to cover, and then you try and write a page or two pages a day, what happens is six months from now, you turn around and you'll go, it, I'm done. Like, oh my gosh. By that point, you'll probably have most of the documents in, and you can go through and you can say, hey, on October 32nd, oh, 32nd, there's no <laughs> on October 22nd, you know. <laughs> At this time, and you can start putting in those little tiny details and filling it out, and and it, it comes together very easily. The problem is that discipline of of writing one or two pages a day, which is not no easy feat. Listen, it's hard, but the the most important thing really is writing that a, a solid outline, which takes a day or two, and it doesn't have to be perfect. It's just kind of like, hey, I want to talk about my family. I want to do a little. Four or five pages about where I was raised. I want to talk about meeting my my husband to be or my future husband. I want to talk about us dating. I want to talk about like I want to I want to build the I want the reader to to know who I am a little bit before I get yeah. to this horrific crime and then all the things that happened after. So mm-hmm. it it's definitely it's something to look into and it it it's just it is a discipline. But but I mean I'm sure you can do it. You guys, yeah. It's the outline. It's the outline. And then you have something to present. I have put my mind to it. I got to really, because a lot of people have said, you know, you need to write a book. Yeah. You need to, even if it's a small book, if, uh, you need to write a book. But think about it. You've, been, you've been writing that book in your mind. It's done. So uh, yeah. Yo, you got that right. Yeah. You yeah. know, and if you say, oh, well, I need an editor. Listen, there are very inexpensive editors. Very, I mean, for a few hundred bucks, you can get an entire book edited. You can, you, you can, 
you really, you know, listen, you figured out how to hook up StreamYard. Okay. Like you got on here <laughs> within a couple of minutes. It took, it took yeah. me like 20 minutes to figure out how to get <laughs> working. So I'm sure you can pull it off. Yeah. Well, listen, I, I wish you the best of luck with the podcast and everything. Thank you so much. Yes. Invisible Tears. Listen to it. Find it on your, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Uh, we have Facebook. We have uh, Instagram, Twitter. Um, look us up. We have a, a, a website, invisible-tears.com. And um, we're all over telling our story, getting our story out. Well, I appreciate you taking the time meeting and uh, uh, being interviewed. Come thank on you podcast. for thank you for allowing me to do your do, to tell my story on here. That was great. It means a lot. Thank you. Uh, hey, I appreciate you guys uh, watching. If you like the video, do me a favor and hit the subscribe button. Hit the bell so you get notified of videos just like this. Also, leave me a comment in the comment section. And uh, I try and respond to most of the comments. Uh, if you're interested in supporting the channel, I have a Patreon. I'll leave that description in the description box. And uh, check me out on all my social medias. I'm going to leave uh, all, um, all of Jane's uh, information in the description box also. And I appreciate you guys uh, watching the video. And thank you very much. And I will see you.